Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is an MCrit Podcast. Today, we're going to revisit an issue we did in the 30s on MCrit. So it had to be like, what, a decade ago or something like that. Uh, we talked about posterior stroke and differentiating vestibular neuritis from posterior stroke. And then over the 10 years uh, since that episode, I've watched the same mistakes being made again and again. I came across a YouTube channel of a Dr. Peter Johns, and he is putting out some of the best multimedia content on vertigo you will ever find. And this is the way to learn it, is by video, not through papers, but actually seeing it done. So I asked him to come on the show, and he was kind enough to join. Before we get to Dr. Johns, let's do a quick plea for the non-membership community who is listening right now to please, please consider joining MCRIT. Uh, it will give so many benefits to the care of the sickest patients in the emergency department. I think if you've been listening for a few years or longer, if you're a dedicated M critter, you know that this is the information that's going to make the difference uh, between you taking care of your patients in the optimal way possible based on evidence and tactical experience uh, versus, you know, just kind of winging it. So if you are getting value, please consider coming over to mcurt.org slash join and becoming a member. All right, let's get to the show. Hello. Peter, how the hell are you, man? I'm good. How are you, Scott? I am excellent. So good to have you here. Yeah, happy to be here. Absolutely. And, you know, we will direct people to your YouTube channel because it is such a wealth of amazing information. But you're not just in the new media world. You are the author of the Tinelli chapter and you've published numerous articles about this. So you've really hit all aspects of teaching and education on Vertigo. You know, you were kind enough to listen to the old episode we had on MCRIT on this. Is there any thoughts? Did I get anything horribly wrong? What do you think? Yeah, no, I did re-listen uh, listen to it, and I was—I I thought you made some very insightful uh, comments on the real value of the Hints exam, which you know some people seem to have forgotten over the years. So, if you don't mind, I'll kind of recap yeah, what I think please. that that is. So, in a nutshell, you know, Hints is, is supposed to be applied to patients with acute vestibular syndrome. That means they have constant dizziness, nausea, vomiting, and their symptoms get worse with head movement. So, and, and they also have difficulty walking. And very importantly, they have nystagmus at rest, meaning that you can see nystagmus when they're looking straight ahead or when they look off to one side or the other. And the basic differential in these patients who we see in the immersed part with acute vestibular syndrome is, is this vestibular neuritis, which is more common, or is it a posterior circulation stroke, which is less common, but obviously much more worrisome. So as you pointed out in your comments, the first line of defense against missing a posterior circulation stroke that present with constant dizziness and nystagmus is not, in fact, the HINTS exam. It's to look for constant uh, for central features that you wouldn't expect to see if the patient had a peripheral cause like vestibular neuritis. And so as and uh, you mentioned the Tintinelli chapter, um, these in my in my algorithm in Tintinelli and 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 other places you can find the central features in the central part of the algorithm, and the central features are new significant headache or neck pain, which would be concerning for cerebral or hemorrhage or, or vertebral dissection, the usual stroke symptoms symptoms like uh, focal weakness or paresthesias, and then there's the posterior circulation symptoms, sometimes called the dangerous D's: diplopia, dysarthria, dysmetria, dysphonia, dysphagia. And then vertical nystagmus at rest, that's also a central thing. But you got to remember that doesn't include vertical upper nystagmus that you see during a positive Dix-Hallpike test. And, and the last big one is inability to walk unaided. 
You, you, know, you don't want to discharge a patient in a wheelchair who normally can ambulate well with a diagnosis of peripheral vertigo. You got to think about a central cause in that situation. Hell yeah, man. So, you know, you mentioned the HINTS exam and the enthusiasm waxed and waned through the years. What's really going on here? You know, in, in the hands of an expert, you mentioned Newman Toker, and I'm sure in your hands, this is a pretty accurate exam, but that doesn't mean it's broadly applicable to people that don't seem to care about it as much. What are your thoughts now in 2022 on the HINTS exam? Well, I think what happened was that there was a lot of enthusiasm and people, you know, tried to apply it and use it, but they didn't really have a proper understanding or proper training of when to use it, how to do it, how to interpret it. So that then they started to feel unsecure as of what they're actually doing. And then there started to be some papers coming out showing that, yeah, maybe we're not doing it uh, correctly. And I, I think, though, the bigger question to, to answer first is what aspect of vertigo a common presenting patient complaint, are we currently doing pretty well? And the answer is nothing. We're not doing anything really well in vertigo. Like the Dix-Hallpike test was described seven years ago and the Epi maneuver almost 30 years ago, but there's still papers coming out in the last year that show if you present to an emergency department with posterior canal BPBV, the most common and curable cause of vertigo that we see, you're more likely to get a useless CT scan of your head than an Epi maneuver. And that, that's just tragic in my opinion. Oh, it, it's worse, uh, man, because... They're also going to get benzodiazepines and antivert and not get the maneuver that would have solved their problems. Or sometimes they get, and I've seen this, they get a CTA and they get their driver's license revoked and, a, and, and dual antiplatelet agents and told they've had a mini stroke. Yep. I've seen that a couple of times in my own shop. So, so there's, you know, there's poor evaluation right across the board. We miss a lot of dizzy strokes with all the morbidity and mortality and medical legal consequences associated with that. We almost never diagnose vestibular migraine, which is another common cause of vertigo. So all this leads to a frustrated patient and a frustrated and fearful doc. Even the, even the people that we call for help when we're uncertain about vertigo, like ENT or neurologists, don't necessarily like or understand vertigo either. The only group of people who consistently understand vertigo well are those ENT or neurologists who have undertaken fellowship training in, in vertigo. And there's precious few of those people around. Most people have never actually seen one in real life. And the ones that do exist tend to write papers about vertigo that are aimed at their peers and not at frontline providers like us. So is this one of those scenarios, Peter, where maybe they won't get to your level, but they have to really be a subject expert on vertigo? Like, do we have to spend, you know, hours in a neurology clinic learning to do the HINTS exam perfectly and, and studying all of the papers? What, what's the deal? What level is reasonable to expect from ED docs? You know, I don't think we need to know that everything, what the vertigo experts know, you know, they, they need to know about all sorts of things like like pos persistent postural perceptual dizziness and round window disorders and stuff like that. But we need to be able to recognize the common important cause of vertigo almost as well as those vertigo experts. Kind of like, you know, with, with cardiologists, we don't need to know everything that they know, but we need to be able to do some things almost as good as them, like knowing if ST elevation on an ECG is a STEMI or benign early repolarization or pericarditis. And we need to know if our dizzy patients have BPPV, vestibular neuritis, or posterior circulation stroke, what I call the big three of vertigo. So yeah, we have challenges in all respects of vertigo right now. But in fact, hints isn't that hard to do, but it's not hard to do wrong or on the wrong patient population. And the interpretation is a little tricky, but, but given the, the many complex things that ED docs do, intubation, ultrasound, et cetera, et cetera, it's certainly something we can do right. And I've taught it to our residents in our program in Ottawa and have had feedback from our dizzy experts, the 
that uh, run the rapid access dizzy clinic, the rad clinic, they call it, that, that, that our vertical educations make a difference when they see the patients, they can see that they've been properly assessed. But unfortunately, the proper use of hints isn't spreading across the world like wildfire. It's, it's isn't hard to find eMERGE docs that'll say that we can't do it or we shouldn't do it. And there's a, and I think there's a there's a reason for the failure of the widespread use of hints. For for one reason, there's so few emergency physicians who are vertigo champions out there to lead the way. You know, if I were to hold a convention of all the ED docs who were committed vertigo education champions in North America, I'd say there'd be less than 10 at the table. Compare that to ultrasound champions, there'd be thousands. Um, Another reason is that some of the non-adopters of hints actively campaign against it. I've seen people on YouTube suggest you can kill people with a head impulse test, which is nonsense, or that a head impulse test can only be done by a neurotologist. I had one guy on Twitter say, uh, you can't rely on the flick of an eyeball to send patients home. But funnily enough, uh, you know, he probably relies on the squiggly lines on an ECG or the shadows of an ultrasound screen to make clinical decisions. You know, Back in the 90s, we didn't just throw a bunch of ultrasound machines at people and expect without training they'd be competent at using them. But for some reason, we, we kind of, we're kind of hoping that would happen with hints. And frankly, you know, the cards have been stacked against all aspects of vertigo for decades. Do you think part of the problem is that there's no actual documentation that you did do it right, like there is for an EKG and an ultrasound. Because let's say you sent home the 85-year-old, you know, and let's say they have no comorbidities, you feel pretty good about it, and your HINTS exam was benign. In, in that, it was an abnormal head impulse. You felt very good about it. That person may not see a doctor for four more months and then could have a posterior stroke. You're hosed because they're going to say you did it wrong. Should we be recording this and actually putting it into the chart now that we have the capability of having multimedia insertion into an EHR? Well, I think that's actually ideal. Uh, it's also important that the way you know that you document your HINTS exam makes sense. You have to describe the nystagmus in a way that is clear what you saw. You can't just say there was nystagmus, no skew, Head impulse, head impulse tests abnormal, therefore hints peripheral. You have to say which direction the nystagmus was and which way when you turn the head, the head impulse test was abnormal because that's important. It, it, if you have a nystagmus, which is beating towards the left all the time, then the head impulse test should be abnormal when you turn your head to the right. And if it doesn't, if you don't write that, then what were you actually doing? So you're right. There has to be adequate documentation. And certainly, I think if you can actually show the um, the actual videos of what you've done, that would be ideal. Now, you've been around for decades now. You've watched the evolution of this. You've watched people understand that they're not good at it because they must know. I mean, the trepidation that ED docs feel every time a patient comes in dizzy would, would attest to the fact that this is a known issue. Anytime in emergency medicine where we don't feel comfortable, generally there's an impetus to actually change. And yet I have not seen that change in vertigo. So what's your historical perspective of why over three decades, we're really not much different than we were at the beginning of your career? Well, unfortunately it, it, it does go back decades. So when I first read Tintinelli and Rosen's in the uh, mid eighties, the information they had were wrong. And they, they told you things like, well, they both had, um, well, they have tables of central versus peripheral characteristics of vertigo. And I've made a couple of videos about that showing how that they're set up to be wrong. You can't possibly make a, a, video, a, a table like that so it's going to make sense. 
uh, but they're still being taught today. And there's, they seem like a very attractive thing. Just, you know, here's, here's, does it look more like this side or more that side? Then you know what's wrong, but unfortunately they don't work. So that's one thing we'd still see that being passed around. You still get people saying, the most important question to, to ask is what do you mean by dizzy? Because that's, you're going to figure out what the, what the differential is. So we have a lot of myths. So, you know, we, we talk about nystagmus as this, well, the, the amateurs at vertigo, as this just uniform thing. They either have nystagmus or they don't. Is that the case? Or is there a differentiation in nystagmus between the various disorders? It's sort of like saying, are all the squiggles on the ECG and all the SD elevation the same thing? No, no, not at all. So, so when you get a positive tall pike test, you know, you'll actually see vertical upper nystagmus and, and rotational nystagmus towards the downward ear. And that's for posterior canal BPPV, which is the most common type. And for vestibular neuritis, you'll actually get horizontal nystagmus with a bit of rotational. It's, it's a little hard to wave your hands around and, and it's much easier to watch it on my videos, but that's what you see. And, and so the way you can definitively diagnose BPBV and vestibular neuritis are by seeing and knowing what nystagmus you should see and seeing if it fits and then doing extra tests and, and actually for BPBV, actually curing them. And that's a test of cure shows that you had the right diagnosis and vestibular neuritis doing the HINTS exam and showing that everything fits with vestibular neuritis and you're, they're safe to go. What about the dreaded, and I don't have a clean answer for this, vestibular TIA? What the hell are we supposed yeah. to do with that? So some people, in particular, Jonathan Edlow, has, has really tried to emphasize that, that, that TIAs are common and they, that they present with isolated vertigo. And I made a video about that. And to, to, just to you know, spoiler alert, I don't think that they're commonly isolated. If you have somebody who has an episode of vertigo and it has something else like the diplopia or dysarthria or hemiplegia or whatever, and it goes away, that's clearly not vestibular neuritis or it's not a vestibular migraine or it's not BPPV. But if it is isolated vertigo, there's there's there are mimics like BPPV can look like a TIA to some people if they don't carefully ask about what they were doing when it came on. Vestibular migraine is way more common than, than TIA presenting with isolated vertigo. And we don't know what, how to diagnose that. Uh, and there is a diagnostic criteria. And once you learn how to make that diagnosis, it suddenly starts popping up all over the place. I, I was studying and looking at vertigo for a good 20 years before I really understood what questions you have to ask on history to make the diagnosis of vestibular migraine. And once I did, it started showing up all over the place, like I mentioned. We'll refer people to your video on that, but could you give us a one-minute synopsis of what those questions would sound like? The questions would be, how many episodes of dizziness have you ever had in your whole life? And if there's five or more, that's that's a possibility. That's it's it's a vestibular migraine. Next question: Do you get do you get migraine headaches? And you know, some people say, no, I don't get headaches at all. Well, do you ever get a headache where you have to lie down in a dark room? Well, not very often. And then you know, eventually you figure out they do have migraines. So they have to have either an established history of migraines or you establish a history of migraines. And then when you look at those five episodes that they've had in the past, and the, the, the funny thing is those episodes of dizziness, they could be five minutes or three days. So it can be right in the TIA sort of timeline, or it can be in, it can look like BPPV because it's very short, or it can look uh, even like acute vestibular syndrome because it's going on for three days. And then you have to ask those, those, those episodes of dizziness you've had in the past, do, do any of them, do you get a, a migraine headache before, during, or after it? And they'll say, oh, yeah, sometimes. What about lights bothering you or sounds bothering you before, during, after? Yes, sometimes. And what about visual symptoms like blurring or funny little lines or anything? Yeah, okay, sometimes. 
And then you'll say, okay, so if all those episodes you've had in the past of dizzy spells, did they, uh, did the half of them have one of those things like a headache or lights bothering your visual problems or less than half? And if they say more than half, that's how you make the diagnosis of vestibular migraine. And you'd be surprised how many people it'll turn out. Oh yeah. Yeah. I get that. I, yeah. The lights bother me. I want to go lie down in a dark room and the the dizziness can be very positional. It can look just it can sound just like PPBV. And so, but if you do if you do a Dix-Hallpike test or a supine roll test, you will not see the characteristic nystagmus of uh, BPBV. So you, you should be able to tease that out too. You know, if you have a patient who has true intermittent vertiginous symptoms, as in when you're not messing with them, they are absolutely fine. Do we need any further workup for posterior stroke in those patients at all? I mean, we're going to do other maneuvers to potentially give a curative pathway to a BPBV diagnosis, but can we stop worrying about those patients? I think that you're mostly safe. If they're a high-risk patient, you know, and they're, they're on uncontrolled AFib and they're not on the, uh, anticoagulants or something, um, sure, but... but it, it it depends on a couple of things. How many episodes have they had when they've had multiple episodes over a long period of time of isolated vertigo only, the chance that it's going to be a TIA is very small. If they, if they have a lot of risk factors, maybe you're going to need to work them up. And if they have almost no risk factors, maybe you don't. And exactly the, the answer for that is nobody really knows. I asked David Newman Toker this and a few years ago, and his, his answer was nobody really knows the answer yet. And, and that's still the case. But high-risk people with isolated vertigo, maybe going to work them up. Low-risk, maybe not. Uh, look for look for the mimics. Look for BPBV. Look for vestibular migraine. And then look to see, is it truly isolated vertigo or not? Ask of all those central features that I talked about earlier. And if they're all negative and they're low-risk patients and it's just isolated vertigo and there's only been or there's been a few episodes, I, I'm not sure I would do anything further. Okay. Well, let me ask you the, the converse on that. And I think I already know your answer based on what you just said, but I think it's worth getting out there. You have an 85-year-old diabetic vasculopath uh, with AFib comes in and their HINTS exam and all of the worrisome features uh, completely benign. Is there anything that's going to stop that patient from getting neurology consult or MRI? Because that is a high-risk patient now. So they have, they have nystagmus. They have and nystagmus. It's superful, they have and all the hints. consistent nystagmus, but the HINTS the hints plus is entirely benign, as in they have abnormal head impulse testing and the test of skew and vertical deviation. They're fine. Is that patient still going in your hands? Because they have every high-risk feature you can name. If you name it, they have it. Are they still going to- Previous stroke. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the answer is I would send them home. If okay. I'm if I clearly see an abnormal head impulse test, but I've seen a lot of abnormal head impulse tests, and I feel confident that that you know that I, I could uh, rule it out with a really good hints exam. I don't see that scenario very often. So if you wanted to play it safe and refer those people, I don't think that you know we're going to bankrupt the system doing that. So if you want to play it safe, I have no problem with that. But but have I sent home people with previous strokes with a peripheral hints exam? I have. Right. Uh, Absolutely. Tell me about the timing and triggers methodology. This is one that uh, John Edlow has been pushing pretty hard to counter a lot of the myths out there. What do you think about this? Well, Jonathan Edlow, he's, he's, he's a very excellent educator. He knows everything about vertigo. And we agree mostly everything that he says I agree with. 
But there's some things that we look at differently. I, I'm a pragmatist. I realize that that practicing ED docs, are, their heads are already filled with vertical misinformation. They have very limited bandwidth to to learn new things. His paper, Times and Triggers, is, is 24 pages long, has five tables, two algorithms, no videos. And I, I feel like trying to teach vertigo without videos is like trying to teach how to ride a bicycle with an infographic. He considers one of the pearls of his approach to the introduction of the concept of spontaneous versus triggered episodic vestibular syndromes. And I, I just find that makes an unnecessary layer of complexity to an already difficult topic. That's why I, I suggest my big three approach. So in, in contrast, the acute vestibular syndrome, of course, is a very uh, important concept to, to understand because that's where the tricky strokes live. But again, Edlo has expanded it to say that you can have an acute vestibular syndrome where you have a patient without nystagmus. And his algorithm states that so you can do the head and pulse tests on patients with constant dizziness without nystagmus, but you just can't rely on the results. Mm. That doesn't really make any sense to me. So, And the reason being is that the HINTS exam has only been tested on patients who've had uh, nystagmus and dizziness. And so to do it on patients who don't have nystagmus, we don't really know what we're getting into. So, so I, in my videos, I've got a whole video on don't do the HINTS exam on patients without nystagmus. So what do um, you do? Well, that's a good question. And I've been struggling for that question a little bit. And luckily, a guy named Mochner from Germany wrote a paper in 2020 that he introduced a concept called the acute imbalance syndrome. So he found that if you've had a patient who is still dizzy in the emergency department, was having difficulty walking, but had no nystagmus, they, they did delayed MRIs on all these people. And if their ABCD2 score was four or above, half of them had acute lesions on their delayed MRIs, mostly strokes. So for that reason, I'm very worried about if I see a patient with difficulty walking, dizziness, and no nystagmus, because the differential, as I said earlier, in acute vestibular syndrome is basically vestibular neuritis versus uh, posterior circulation stroke. And almost every patient with vestibular neuritis in the first couple of days, they will have nystagmus. So if you don't see it, it's kind of taken that whole big chunk off the table. And what you're left with is a lot of strokes. Mm. So in, in, in if I would just say worry about people who are having trouble walking, are feeling dizzy and no nystagmus. I love that. Now, is, there, is that clear line cannot walk unaided or is it just really any change in their walking balance? Uh, he, he, he described it as I remember an acute change in their, in their, 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 their balance or, or ambulation. Okay. So, so, you know, I think, I think, you know, you know how you have some people saying I'm having trouble walking and they walk up and down, it looks totally fine. I wouldn't include that. Got it. But if somebody says, somebody says, I'm having trouble walking and they're kind of lurching around, you go, how do you normally walk? And they go, I walk fine usually. Yep. Uh, then I, and I've seen that. Uh, then worry about those people. You know, the, the new thing that's been introduced recently, though it might have come out a lot longer, but I haven't heard about it until the past couple of years, is Hints Plus. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So as, as we've uh, alluded to, the Hints exam has three components to it. And HINTS Plus is the addition of uh, a bedside test of hearing in order to look for what could be an ICA stroke. So well, all you do to, to test the hearing is you just take your fingers and you rub it a few inches away from each ear and ask them if, there's, if they can hear it. And if they can't hear, if this is a new finding, this would be concerning for an ICA stroke. The anterior inferior cerebellar artery supplies uh, blood to part of the cerebellum, but also to the labyrinth, which contains the organs of hearing and balance. So if you infarct the ICA, you can develop a new hearing loss as well as what looks like a peripheral, peripheral uh, balance problem 
and part of the cerebellum. So that's why that was added to to become more sensitive for picking up strokes, uh, but maybe decrease the specificity a little bit because you know I suppose that you can you can get labyrinthitis where you also get acute hearing loss and an acute uh, vestibular syndrome, but those are fairly rare. And it's not really clear which is more common, an ICA stroke or a viral labyrinthitis. But I would say that, again, if you had an old person with lots of risk factors, and they came in with a new hearing loss and nothing else going on other than dizziness and hearing loss, I'd be worried about an ICA stroke. And if you had a young person who had said they had a, a cold and now they had an earache and their TMs red and they've developed an acute vestibular syndrome, I'd be more comfortable calling that a labyrinthitis. And everywhere in between is, again you know, how, how you deal with risk. Absolutely. Okay. How does a doc know whether they're actually ready to independently do a HINTS exam to make clinical decision? Well, I think that in order to do so, you have to be pretty confident in your HINTS exam. So you have to be able to give the indications for using HINTS, list all the central features I described earlier, and you have to be able to chart the results of the HINTS plus exam appropriately, like I said, without referring to any notes. And the hardest part, I think, is that you should have had a vertigo, vertigo champion watch you do the HINTS exam to make sure that you're physically doing it properly. Because as I said, it's not hard to do it wrong. In fact, um, I just made a video about the, the, the physical aspects of doing the, the head impulse test. And it's part of it originated from the fact that an emergency doctor in Taiwan was using the HINTS exam and he showed me one of his head impulse tests. And I'm like, oh, that could be a little better. So I actually had a little uh, Zoom meeting with his residency group and, and showed them, it gave them feedback on how to do the head impulse test. And I think that's important that, that it be observed that you can do it correctly. And I also think that you should also be able to produce on your phone, a video of you doing a head impulse test and showing an abnormal head impulse test and making clearly that you've been able to do that. And if you can do all that, then I think you can probably start using the HINTS exam to uh, make decisions. Peter, I got to say, it's kind of ridiculous that we have very clear certification things for dumb stuff like a venipuncture and, and art lines. When this, which is really, I think, uh, a, a true function of being taught well and being evaluated, doesn't have, like, I don't know any residency that has, you must do five observed hints exams before you're allowed to do it in real life. And it seems like clearly that should be the case, that we should lock down during residency training that the competency is there. What do you think about that? Well, I do. I think that's a great idea. But again, I'm not sure that every program has a vertigo education uh, champion. And, they have and to so out to you pay you some money. To well, you know, <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm always available. <laughs> All right. Are there other areas we should improve on in vertigo in the emergency department and critical care units? Well, we already touched on the fact that our nystagmus, you know, that's a fundamental skill that to be able to describe the nystagmus you're seeing. It's not, you can't just say, I saw nystagmus. That was a, a big one. And then we didn't mention, talk too much about the fact that there's more than one kind of BBVV, that the most common one is posterior canal, where you get the vertical upward nystagmus rotating towards the downward ear. So posterior canal, the most common cause of BBVV is the one that you do the Dix-Hallpike test. And if you see vertical upward and rotary nystagmus, you do the epi maneuver and that cures it. But horizontal canal BPPV is probably about a third of the cases of BPPV that we see in the emergency department. I didn't really know that until about 10 years ago, maybe, because I didn't really recognize it because I didn't know how to diagnose it. And it, it actually is quite common and you have to do so. So if you do a Dix-Hallpike test and they, they sound just like they have BPPV and do a Dix-Hallpike test and they, they're negative on both sides, or you see horizontal nystagmus on either side or both sides, 
they probably have horizontal canal PPBV and that you have to do a different diagnostic, diagnostic test, which is called the supineural test. And the cure is uh, the one I like to use is called the Gafani maneuver and it works quite well. And I have a video for that as I well. I have to say, I'm sure you must have a video for it. Is there anything we're missing, Peter? I think what we're missing is an enthusiasm for seeing vertigo patients. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we generally people will say that they are frustrated and fearful of vertigo patients. And so what we have to do is make them feel uh, rewarded and happy to see them. And the reason, the way you do that is to get them to know how to diagnose BPBV and cure them because it's fun and easy, and then teach them how to screen for central features and do the HINTS exam so you can confidently send home the vestibular neuritis patients. And I think you'll have people who are now happy to see vertigo patients and can become vertigo champions. And it just won't be me and three other people, you know, trying to lead the way. Peter, I can't thank you enough. This was absolutely wonderful. Well, it was my pleasure, Scott. Uh, uh, happy to talk about vertigo to anybody, anytime.